Hey there, and welcome. This is the Skins Podcast, produced by the Facade Tectonics Institute. With invited industry thought leaders, we take on all things building skin. People, give me just a few seconds here. I want to talk about Shuko USA, our sponsor for this episode of the Skins Podcast the door window and facade system provider of Shuko products here in North America, featuring German engineering made in America. Operating Shuko doors and windows is like operating a high-performance German automobile. Quite satisfying. Shuko's diverse window, door, and facade systems not only provide best-in-class thermal and acoustical performance, but are tested and certified in accordance with AMA, NFRC, ADA, UL, and Miami-Dade hurricane standards. With literally unbeatable thermal and acoustical performance, they even have window systems that meet demanding passive house standards. Check out a Shuko thermal break sometime and compare it with the competition. Their network of trained and certified glazing contractors ensures that their systems are properly installed, commissioned, and serviced. If you design or specify facade systems and components, you need to know Shuko. Welcome, everybody. Excited to be here uh, in the... Uh, latest in the podcast series that I'm doing with my co-host, Ted Kessick. Uh, and we are excited to have with us today on the topic of embodied carbon, Jennifer O'Connor, Anthony Pack, and Stacey Smed- Smedley. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. It's great to have you here. Um, so let's get started uh, with, um, you know, sort of creating a framework for this discussion uh, embodied carbon, what the heck is it anyway? Uh, there's a lot of people out there that don't really know. Uh, even worse, there's a lot of people out there that think they know that don't really know. So Jennifer, how about taking a shot at, uh, at uh, basic definition for us? Um, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And, um, and I think it's, you know, I think it's a good idea to at least get a, a sample of the technical lingo, and then we'll go back to using the handy phrase embodied carbon. Um, but it is a bit of a confusing phrase. Some people think it's the carbon um, contained in a material, and, and it's it's not. It's, it's more properly called scope three greenhouse gas emissions, or sometimes people call that upstream downstream emissions or indirect emissions. And, and, and what it's about, it's, it's those, uh, it's those emissions that are not directly emitted by uh, a material, but were indirectly emitted over the life cycle of the material and in manufacturing, uh, perhaps maintaining it and then emissions at end of life. So that's what embodied carbon means. Any, uh, any, uh, further elaborations on that? I mean, I guess there's um, terms that people are now coining on top of embodied carbon. So there's the stages of carbon, embodied carbon that Jennifer mentioned, you know, stages A, B, and C. So it breaks down even farther into stages. And stage A is that extraction, transportation, manufacturing, and installation emissions. So everything associated with getting that material made and installed in a project. And then stage B is the use stage. And then stage three is the end of life stage. And so embodied carbon is really all of those things. Some people use it loosely to account for one of those stages and not all. So I think, you know, there is some kind of literacy and um, distinction that needs to be be thought about when you're talking about it and using that phrase. Uh, Upfront embodied carbon is the term that a lot of people are now using for that first stage A, for instance. Uh Uh-huh. 
Anthony. Yeah, and maybe I'll, I'll add also that um, to quantify this, we do what's called a life cycle assessment, LCA. And when we're doing that, we're looking at actually multiple environmental impact categories. So one of which is global warming potential, which we're oftentimes referring to when we mention embodied carbons or carbon emissions um, or the carbon footprint. Um, but then there, we're also looking at a few other environmental impact categories, things like acidification potential, eutrophication, ozone depletion. Um, a depletion of non-renewable energy. So j- just note that there are multiple environmental impact categories when we're typically analyzing this, but the main one that people are referring to when they're talking about embodied carbon, that's relating to global warming potential or GWP. Right. And there are, uh, uh, it's, you know, we talk about carbon, but it's not just carbon, right? It's carbon, mm-hmm. carbon equivalents. And in fact, there are some of the, of the uh, components that are uh, pretty dramatically more potent than carbon, right? Yeah, you know, that's exactly right, Mick. And, uh, and I'm glad that you brought up that we're shorthanding everything by using the word carbon. Um, carbon is shorthand for carbon dioxide, and that's shorthand for all of the greenhouse gas emissions, some of which are, you're right, substantially more potent. And so the, the way that we bring that into this global warming potential figure is we convert everything to what the equivalent would be in, in carbon dioxide impact. So many, many times greater for some of those emissions. So, you know, let me, let me ask you, Ted. Yeah. So you and I, you and I put this, uh, this session together on embodied carbon. Uh, We've got a pretty solid definition of embodied carbon going here. Uh, But so why do we care? Why are we doing this? Why do we care about embodied carbon? I mean, I was at a, you know, an urban green session in uh, New York City a couple of years ago, and I brought this topic up uh, as this large group was trying to figure out solutions, uh, material heavy solutions to improve the operational performance of buildings in New York City. Uh, And, you know, there was a long silence. And then a guy said, well, our assumption is that, Embodied carbon is 8% or less of the whole building life cycle f- uh, carbon footprint. So uh, we, we've just are ignoring it. So why do we care about embodied carbon? Well, I mean, it's an interesting thing. I'm going back a ways and dating myself about 20 years ago. And I was talking about the relationship between uh, environmental impacts and the durability of materials. And one of the things that, that I was trying to um, get across to people was that when we say that a material is durable, it means that its useful service life should be comparable to the time uh, required for the ecosystem to absorb the impacts of, of that particular material or system or component. And so as long as you were within that ecological carrying capacity, it was sustainable. And, and the problem is, is that what life cycle assessment is telling us based on a whole bunch of different indices that are carried within the assessment is that some of the things that we're doing are not in the long term sustainable. And so and, and whether that's because of climate change or whether that's even for things like resource depletion, it's it's really, really important that we learn to live within our ecological footprint. And I think that's what really this this whole conversation is 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 about is bringing people to that awareness that they're designing within a different context than just, you know, we're going to go out there, conquer the environment, take what we want, make what we want, and we'll worry about it, well, whatever. Jennifer, tell us a little bit about uh, what you're up to at the Athena Institute. You are involved 
in a, in a whole building, a WBLCA whole building life cycle assessment initiative. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and maybe some of the other stuff that's going on at the Athena Institute? Um, yeah, I'll try to be super brief. Um, uh, cause we've got our fingers and all kinds of things. So, so this could go on if I don't restrain myself. Um, but the Athena Sustainable Materials Institute is a, is a longstanding, um, North American nonprofit group that's, that's works in a unique area. Uh, and that's bringing this, this science called life cycle assessment to the, to the construction sector with the, the idea that if we can uh, begin to quantify the impacts of our decisions in manufacturing and in the use of materials in construction, that we can then begin to, to reduce those impacts. So uh, the idea there is, is how do we make it possible for designers and product specifiers to look at their decisions on design and on materials within the context of the whole building and over its entire life so that we can look at the trade-offs that you need to put in place to decide whether, uh, say, using a high-impact material in construction is going to eventually uh, pay off environmentally down the road. And so, so life cycle assessment, you know, it, it's, I know enough about this to be dangerous. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I, I do not practice that. What I understand about it is that while it's been around for what, probably at least four decades or something like that, that it is, that it remains, you know, a substantial part of it remains highly subjective, right? It's it's uh, as much of an art form as it is a science. Maybe uh, that might be unfair in saying that, but you know, if I if I get twelve different LCA practitioners, I give them the same problem. Am I going to get am I going to get a convergence in the answer, or is it going to be twelve different answers? <laughs> Um, I, you know, I think it's a very fair question, I, and I, I, I wouldn't disagree with you. Um, it's a, you know, it's a science, uh, well established in practice for a long time, but it is an estimating science, uh, which means it involves a lot of assumptions. Um, particularly the further into the future, we're, we're looking and making guesses about what's going to happen to a product or to a material or to um, how we manage things in landfills, for example. We have to make so many assumptions about that, that it means we need to look at the results uh, with a, a grain of salt. Uh, and on top of that, there's all kinds of different sources of the background data and the background assumptions um, that, I, you know, I won't go into the technical details right now, but it, it's the reason why you could possibly get 12 different results for the same product if they were studied in different ways by different people. It's uh, it's something that, that the assessment is very... Um location dependent, right? It's not going to be the same answer if it's Vancouver versus New Yeah, I'm, I'm conscious of hogging the mic here. Um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll answer that as well. Yeah, for sure. There, there, there will be differences depending on location. The, the biggest one will be the, the, uh, the, the constitution of the, of the electricity grid. Uh, is electricity being generated through combustion of coal? For example, versus a, a region that's more dependent on on hydroelectricity, and that's going to make, for example, that's just one example of where you're going to see a big difference regionally. 
Stacey, uh, part of your work at, at Skanska, Skanska involved the development of uh, the EC3 tool, which uh, is not a full-on lifecycle assessment tool, right? But it is a tool that is designed to give information about embodied carbon in systems and products or, or something like that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, my role at Skanska um, over the past you know, seven years has been uh, focused on kind of all sorts of environmental impacts of materials, but specifically how as a contractor, we should be looking at the embodied carbon of the materials we're procuring and installing. And so that's kind of narrowed the focus um, for me down to that upfront carbon stage, the upfront embodied carbon stage, stage A, that is manufacturing through installation. And the way Skanska approached that was to try to think about how we could look at the emissions of materials, just like we would a cost estimate, where we'd have choices uh, of actual products per material. We would look at cost. We could also look at carbon um, and then actually track the transportation and installation emissions in real time on our on our job sites. Um, so through that effort, what we started to realize uh, at Skanska was that that kind of manufacturing uh, stage, cradle to gate, where it's leaving that manufacturing site, could be accounted for in some way through environmental product declarations. Um, but while trying to compare them, you would get into the weeds about the background data and all these things. So uh, EC3, the Embodied Carbon and Construction Calculator, was really the outcome of um, first us at Skanska trying to basically create a database of EPDs that was digital and online that we could then use for this kind of carbon estimating assessment um, of products. And now it's turned into an open source uh, tool that's being housed at a new nonprofit called Building Transparency. Right. And that's, that is a nonprofit that you recently established with Skanska? Skanska has allowed me to be on loan to that nonprofit as the executive director uh, to make sure that the EC3 tool continues to grow and scale this year. Um, uh-huh. It was established by a founding board uh, that included the Carbon Leadership Forum's Kate Simonin, Sea Change Lab, the tool developers, uh, Phil, Knock, Phil, Phil Northcott, and then um, Don Davies of Magnuson Kalinsic and Associates, who was a funder of the tool uh, through its beta phase. And how, how does this tool, uh, who does it benefit how, how is it used and who, is, who does it benefit in the in the building process? Well, the key difference between whole building LCA tools and EC3 is that it is uh, very specifically focused on the kind of specification and procurement phase after you've made your system's choices using whole building LCA data. So once you know you're building a building out of a certain um, bill of materials list, you know you're using concrete uh, and this type of glazing and this type of insulation, how can you go into those categories and look at product and manufacturer-specific data directionally to start to specify the lowest carbon options and then put that into bid language um, to, to really prove it through procurement. Is it fair to characterize it as a, a, an early design uh, material decision-making tool? I would call it a late design material specification and procurement tool. Okay. And is, is, it, is it similar to Tally in that respect, or is no, Tally more again, early? Yeah, the key difference, I think, even with um, the tools that Anthony and Anthony may use and Jennifer, you know, is creating with their um, early decision-making tools, their free tool, is that that is looking at all life stages, all life stages, and all impacts. So it's really good for those systems-level choices. Uh, we want folks to use those tools to make those systems-level choices and pick between the different systems or materials they may want to use, uh, and then once they know what they're using, move on to the ability to use environmental product declarations and EC3 to specify the lowest carbon options. And that also incentivizes manufacturers to disclose and reduce um, uh, through their EPDs. Anthony, uh, what to... Go ahead, Ted. 
I, I just wanted I wanted to uh, I wanted to bring Anthony in, into the discussion because I think he's the junior member of our uh, group. Although I, I'm not sure, I know for sure that he's younger than I am when I looked at his picture. <laughs> so, <laughs> but he's younger than I am. I, I would say his brain Ted, but his brain may not be the junior member. His age. I also looked at the CV and I thought, okay, well, okay, so he, he's got some senior uh, characteristics here as well. In terms of the fact that you've really beat the subject to death in, in many ways, which is a good thing. You've gotten into in depth. What are you seeing between the different, and like the tool you use, and, and how you're actually operating in this landscape where people are starting to look at LCA and all this kind of stuff? I, I really wanted to get someone who, in your case, is sort of venturing into this space quite early on compared to, to most people. What's it look like? What's the terrain look like? Sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like you said, you know, life cycle assessment, um, it, it's relatively, I would say relatively new for most people on projects to actually bring it onto projects and use it to inform design decisions. Um, you could think of it almost like an analogy with like energy modeling where we're very used to having energy modelers model different design options, uh, in early design and kind of predict the energy performance of a building. I think similarly, you can use life cycle assessment to uh, understand the uh, carbon emissions around the material choices, right? So uh, there are, um, but that being said, you know, there's not that many people that are purely focused on life cycle assessment uh, within the building sector. Oftentimes, you know, it may be like architects or structural engineers or, you know, different members uh, within the design team that are um, kind of picking it up. And so uh, it's it's fairly new for a lot of people. There are a few different tools that are out there for uh, doing this type of analysis specific to buildings. Um, there's the one, the Athena Impact Estimator from um, Jennifer's organization. That's a free uh, tool that's been around for, you know, uh, I think more than a decade. Uh, and it's freely available. It's widely used. It's, it's a really great tool for understanding different early design options. You have something like Tally, which is... Uh, um, developed by an um, architecture firm called Kieran Timberlake, and that's a Revit plugin. Uh, so basically with your Revit model, you can map all the different um, BIM components to uh, their materials database and understand the impacts that way. And then there's also a tool called One Click LCA uh, from Finland, and it's been more widely used in Europe. I think now it's starting to come into North America a bit more, but um, there may not be as much familiarity around it. Um, and that one... Uh, yeah, you can do early design. You can also uh, integrate with different EPDs, um, both manufacturer and industry uh, average uh, EPDs. So EPDs are environmental product declarations. That's the stuff that's inside of, uh, for instance, the EC3 tool that Stacy was talking about. And so I think in the early stages, when you're making these kind of system level choices, using one of those three tools uh, is a good bet. I, I think there's probably a few others out there, but those are the three ones that I see more commonly used. And at that stage, I think in the early design phase, when you're not sure what um, you know manufacturers you're going to use or whatnot, you're just more trying to pick different material types. I think it's best to use industry average data. So for instance, like what's the Canadian industry average uh, data for concrete mixes, different concrete mixes or uh, different types of insulation. So um, you know, Athena, I believe, has mostly industry average data. They probably have some manufacturer-specific stuff as well. Uh, Tally also has a lot of ma- uh, industry average data, um, although both of them, I think, are based on different upstream uh, 
lifecycle inventory databases. So you, there may be slight differences in those results. Um, and then there's a one-click LCA, which has a, like a big library of EPDs that are both industry average and manufacturer specific. So I think to, to what Stacy's point is earlier on, I think it's good to use the industry average data to kind of a- analyze this. And then as you get more towards the procurement phase and you're actually selecting between different manufacturers, that may be a place when you might look into the manufacturer specific information. So this is not something that like just the average person can pick up. Like I used to always joke around with people. I say this, this, this is not something like a home root canal or something like that. Right. Uh, the, 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 to do this properly, you have to have quite a good background and understanding of what you're dealing with, right? Or else it's, it's one of those garbage in, garbage out type of uh, <laughs> scenario. I'm asking the question because that was certainly my experience with uh, energy modeling. If you didn't know what you were doing, I mean, you ended up with results that were wild in some cases. I, I would just say, I think, you know, personally speaking, as a non LCA expert, our kind of move to create something that was maybe just taking off a low-hanging fruit end of end of the stream approach with EC3 was trying to make something that would be easily accessible and available and just kind of go do this, pick these three buttons and get to a place where you can make a choice. Um, but I think that all the tools that are out there that Anthony mentioned are working really hard to get easier to use um, and try to translate really complicated things into something that a you know, a typical practitioner could do versus an LCA expert. And and I think that they're all successful in different ways. I mean, that was my experience testing them all out when I was trying to get to this level of specificity with um, procurement for Skanska. Um, Anthony, I don't know, or Jennifer, if you have a response to that too, but I think making it a, a move to make it as easy as possible to incentivize and increase adoption is urgently necessary. And I think all the tools are working on that. I, I'd like to actually hop in and, and talk about Ted's point. I think it's really, really important. Um, and, and you're absolutely right, Ted. Looking back at, at energy simulation as an analogy um, in the early days, for sure, um, people made all kinds of mistakes. Um, and and then what came over time is the, is the, is the deeper understanding to know uh, how to interpret your results and to be able to see when stuff makes sense and when it doesn't, um, what stuff matters and, and what doesn't. And I think we have a ways to go um, in LCA because I would suggest it's an order of magnitude more complicated than energy simulation. And it's reliant on on a vast amount of background data, which is well beyond the understanding capacity of of most folks. So I, I think you know it's a bit of an issue when we 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 make these these tools uh, easy to use, but we're perhaps not yet accompanying that with the appropriate technical training, uh, so that. You know, we're my concern is we're handing the keys to a to a Ferrari um, to a, you know someone that's just got their driver's license. <laughs> yeah, and I, I and and the reason I'm mentioning this is because I know of uh, former students of mine who have really taken up great interest with whether it's uh, your uh, particular uh, software, the Athena, or whether they've gotten involved with Tally, and they say that they're using it to make certain dis- design decisions or at least proposing certain design solutions to their clients based on embodied carbon and, and other types of environmental impacts. And one of the questions that I come up in my own mind is, okay, so what is the sort of entry level of knowledge that's needed? Because we, we saw big problems with 
uh, I would say until about the last three or four years, where, where now we're starting to see a much more uniform quality of, uh, you know, for example, daylighting uh, simulation and energy uh, simulation in buildings, because there are now programs and people are actually doing courses and, and you can actually go and, and formally study this stuff. And that, that's always good for a discipline to have that kind of uh, knowledge-based structure on which to base, you know, uh, what they do. So that, that that's one of the big concerns that I have is, is, is that the other one, and it's, it's the one I think that's more big picture, and I really would be interested in getting everyone's perspective on this. We had talked about, like, at one time, the different, con- not conflicting criteria, but the fact that there's there really isn't, no one's really yet thought about how are we going to harmonize things like daylighting simulation, natural ventilation simulation, energy modeling, uh, durability, uh, life cycle costing, and then life cycle assessment. How do we uh, take all of these different uh, probes into uh, what we're doing and, and, and somehow synthesize them into something that gives us a picture of, is this a good building? And is it a good building on a number of levels? Because at the end of the day, I always tell people, look, if you want a low-carbon building, we've had this for years. It's not in every climate zone, but here we used to call it an igloo. Very low carbon. I don't know if that's suitable for most people as a, as a, as a, as a building. So, so what, what, given what we want to do today, whether it's a hospital or a research facility or a university or, or just somebody's house, you know, how do we put all of these things together so that we're getting good environmental performance, but also good economic performance, you know, great durability, uh, good comfort, uh, you know, lots of daylight, lots of fresh air. I, I see, the problem being who is going to ultimately be the conductor of the symphony of, of, of uh, you know, software and techniques for analyzing and assessing the performance and impacts of COVID. So can I take this one real quick? Because I want to answer kind of both things real fast. I'll do it as fast as I can. Um, but I want to answer the first one first, which is around... Um, you know, getting literate and and providing technical expertise around these things. Can, I just want to, everyone to think, can you imagine if we had waited to start operational energy modeling and and reduction strategies if we tried to wait till we were all literate in it? So I think there's a, a need and desire that we need to get to that best case, but we have to start acting now, even if people are maybe driving with their learner's permit for a little while. Um, as, as we get that kind of literacy and training up to snuff and where it needs to be now that the interest is there. So that's my first one. And then on the, the data side, I think that there's, um, you know, what Building Transparency's mission is, it's to provide free open access tools and data um, through transferable APIs around embodied carbon. And what we're seeing there is the power of softwares and tools and different um, in different workflows and different streams, be able to talk to each other and bring in different data points. So imagine an energy modeling tool uh, with able to bring in a free open access database of embodied carbon data uh, into it. So it can look at envelope systems and embodied carbon impacts at the same time, as long as that data, again, is, is very rigorous and transparent and, and documentable. Uh, but how do we start to allow software tools to talk to each other and share their specific data that's specific to their work stream? Um, so we don't have to have you know silos of tools that try to compete to do everything, but really tools that are talking to each other and sharing that. And that also gets to an alignment of data if that starts to happen. So meanwhile, we're, you know, we're on a global building spree, or at least we have been until very recently, right? And, and we have 
uh, sort of just fairly recently recognized the fact that we've been working with only half of the equation, right? And working in, in focusing on uh, operational carbon consumption, right? And so we've been basically solving operational carbon problems by adding to the material part, like with double skin facades, for example, by adding to the material part of the equation without including that, you know, those quantities in the equation at all. So, you know, to cycle back to a question I asked, or asked earlier, why do we care about this? What is the magnitude of the problem? What are we talking about? Are we talking about something that is less than 10% of the embodied carbon footprint of the, the built environment? What do we know about that? It's a critical juncture to, to compare, um, you know, the the embodied carbon or the materials related impacts with the operational carbon emissions. And I think especially important whenever you're dealing with the envelope, because there's interactions on both ends of that. And right now, those two fields are kind of fragmented. You have your energy modelers and your building envelope uh, scientists that are focusing on it from an operational perspective. And then there's the embodied side, which right now we're just starting to pay a bit more attention to. Now, I think when it comes to operational carbon, we know that there's huge variations in terms of carbon emissions, right? We, we tend to focus a lot on energy, but if we look at the carbon intensity, like kilograms of CO2 per meter squared of floor area, you can see huge ranges depending on where you're located, what the electricity grid is, um, and the carbon intensity of it is. And so, for example, in, in Canada, you know, Calgary may be closer to like 70 kilograms of CO2 per meter squared per year of operation for a baseline building. And then, you know, maybe Vancouver could be closer to 20. Uh, and then if you get uh, towards, you know, the step code and electric uh, buildings, um, you might get down to below five kilograms of CO2 per meter squared per year. That's to operate each year. So you can see like operationally, there's a huge variation in terms of what we're talking about. So whenever we're throwing around these percentage figures around what percentage embodied versus what percentage operational know that there's a huge range for the operational and then on the embodied side we also see a big range like in some of the benchmark studies that i've seen they're they're typically in the range of between 100 to 1000 kilograms of co2 per meter squared uh that's on the material side and that's all up front or mostly up front um However, that's also not necessary. There may be certain things that aren't included in that scope. We may be mostly focused on the structure and the envelope, but we're not looking at, for instance, the mechanical systems, the refrigerants, or the interior partitions, or the tenant improvements, et cetera. And so, you know, that number may grow as we increase the scope as well. So the, it's hard to kind of put a, a clear percentage number because these things will change so drastically. And I think part of the reason why BC and Vancouver has been very focused on embodied carbon is because we've gotten the operational fairly low. We have mostly hydroelectricity. So the, the operational carbon intensity can be fairly low. And so what's left of the pie, like embodied becomes a bigger piece of a smaller pie. Yeah, I could speak a little bit because we now do this analysis for all of our kind of pursuit projects. Uh, well, not all, but a good portion for, for Skanska. If we're going after a project, we'll look at this an early analysis and we'll take um, a benchmark number for embodied carbon that we're getting from the Carbon Leaderships Forum Embodied Carbon Benchmark Study, which is somewhere between 500 and 800, Anthony, like you mentioned, as a high benchmark for embodied carbon. And then we'll look specifically at the energy grid of the place, plus the energy use intensity proposed for the building. That's the you know kilowatt hours per square foot per year. In Seattle, it might be that to 2050, uh, the embodied carbon's 80% of that pie when it comes to carbon emissions. It might be that in somewhere like Florida, it's 30% of the pie. So it can swing drastically one way or the other, like Anthony mentioned. I think the data that um, 
Architecture 2030s put out with just kind of average data where it's somewhere around 50-50. If you look at everything and put it together, it's probably somewhat right. <laughs> we don't know for sure. Um, we just know, I think, that embodied carbon is a big enough piece of that pie when we start to look at it with the end goal of zero carbon by 2050 that we can't ignore it. And if we don't start accounting for it, we're, we're really never going to get to that zero mark. Could I um, jump in and an answer this from a slightly different perspective? Um, the, the, the question about whether or not we should care about this <clears throat> has you know, historically been, well, over the lifetime of the building, it's, it's relatively small. And that, that remains true at the moment. Uh, it, you know, it may change down the road, but, but right now it is relatively small. And there's no question that operating energy is, is, is incredibly important to address, particularly when you consider that the bulk of the built environment are buildings already standing currently consuming energy. The, the, the question really is, is about time frame. So when we look at, well, what percent over the lifetime of the building, we're looking 60 or 70 years down the road. Uh, but maybe we want to take a shorter perspective, uh, considering that there is some urgency to address climate change uh, sooner rather than later. If we put more of a five or 10 year perspective on that, then there's no question that the bulk of that building's impact uh, in that time period are the, the embodied impacts. And so that's why folks are starting to think about it, um, and then it's 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 all part of of, of an even uh, higher level um, understanding. This this acknowledgement we're all starting to to grasp is that uh, every time we use something, every time we consume something, that there was impact related to making the something that we're consuming. So that every time we put up a new building, there's impact, and and that I think is the overarching. Uh, lesson uh, of our our awareness and our activity now in embodied carbon is to is to take that broader perspective that it matters when we use stuff yeah great great point how to spin on this just because you know this is something that's happening within the facade tectonics institutions in the sense that it's uh, it's it's very much concerned about skins of buildings and really the skins of buildings you have a lot of influence on the performance of the building in an energy sense of the word because it's the environmental separator. It's not the only thing happening, but it's 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 major. And like the thing I think that that where I'd like to uh, hopefully see things going, I like to see what the views are of, of the people on this podcast. Um, we we still haven't done a good job of sorting out questions like, okay, so really is it what's the benefit of going from double glazing to triple glazing and then let's say going from triple glazing to quadruple glazing as they have in parts of europe is is the offset in the operating really uh more than compensating for the added embodied carbon and 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 how does that work and so I guess I guess what I'm asking is that if I'm a practitioner, and I always think of medical practitioners because they're the people at the front lines, and somebody comes into the office, and they have to figure out what to give this person or not give this person uh, to make them better or, or who else to send them to. And so you want to give people some kind of guidance. Like all of this stuff is fascinating to me intellectually and professionally, but then I think at the end of the day, okay, how am I going to have this stuff be useful to somebody? So somebody comes in and says, why don't we move over to triple glazing? It's going to drop our HVAC load by 30%. And you go, okay, but what does it do for the embodied carbon? And so 
that type of a discussion. And then, and then in order for it to work, like what's the minimum uh, service life that we should be getting out of that facade, you know? So that because because we know that 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 we might get great environmental performance out of the facade, uh, energy wise, but then. What if it only lasted five years, and then you have to go back to Mother Nature, tap in, and all those embodied uh, carbon, uh, you know, impacts would come back out just to make yourself a new, a new, a new uh, skin for the building. And so it, it's it's that kind of a dialogue, I think, within a design context that that's missing. But I wanted to know how, how the people here, how would you approach that if you wanted to give really meaningful guidance to people making a facade decision? Well, so at Skanska, again, where I could put this into, into practice, it really is just one more data point in a decision-making matrix that we can give to a client, right? So if we can access the data we need to include that embodied carbon metric for whatever glazing we're using, we can give you know the four different uh, glazing options with the cost impacts of those options and the operational impacts of those options over a certain life cycle and a, assume a certain replacement cycle, um, and then what is the embodied carbon impact of that choice with that replacement cycle? So I, I think it's just a matter of starting to do it. And I think that the challenge right now gets back to Jennifer's point about um, education and technical expertise. People need to understand this is a metric to add to their their column spreadsheet, if that's how we're doing it right now, um, and, and just start doing it in practice as a, as a typical um, a typical project deliverable. Well, if you... If you're talking about, you know, how do you do that? Let's let's be more specific, because because sure. yeah. you know what what we're really talking about is is whole building life cycle assessment to to answer those questions. So you're encompassing all the life cycle phases and not you know shifting burden from one phase to another, for example, or you're you're, you're doing it within the scope of the whole building. Um, you know that that requires using one of those tools that Anthony mentioned to to do the life cycle assessment for the whole building over its life. So that you look at that trade-off between uh, perhaps a higher upfront embodied carbon, but you're but you're going to get that back perhaps through less maintenance, perhaps through less product replacements, um, perhaps through downsizing of the HVAC system. You know, so I'm just giving a couple examples there of of, uh, of why it's so important to look at the problem holistically. Yeah, and actually, I just want to add one uh, something that is a bit um, like practically when you're looking at the facade of the system. Um, you know, when we're doing a life cycle assessment, one of the val- uh, valuable parts of it is to do sort of a hotspot analysis to understand which which materials or which components of your building have a disproportionate, like very high impact, and where should you focus your attention. And when it comes to facades, personally, like I think one one area that's very practical that people can start looking at is um, certain types of insulation that seem to have very, very significant impacts uh, based on the environmental product declarations that have come out. And so those are XPS insulation and spray foam. And in particular, it's not that both of those insulation is uh, bad by itself. It's it's, no, it's more about the blowing agents that are used in both of those types of insulation or commonly used in North America. And that's because they're using HFC, hydrofluorocarbons, uh, which are essentially refrigerants. And so they use this as a blowing agent. And these, uh, going back to the global warming potential point, these gases, these refrigerants can have thousands of times higher impact per unit compared to uh carbon dioxide. And so small releases of these gases can be very, very significant from a global warming potential. So for example, in XPS, if you look at some of the manufacturer-specific EPDs, uh, you can get 
just for one inch R5 XPS insulation, that's between 40 to 100 kilograms of CO2 per meter squared. That's very significant. So think of if you have, you know, eight inches or 12 inches of XPS, uh, as I've actually seen on a project recently, that can add up very significantly and that could almost be on the scale of entire buildings. And so um, it's important to uh, specify when you're looking at the, ideally, if you can not use that type of insulation, that would help. Uh, Also, there are some new uh, versions of these types of insulation that are coming onto the market um, January 1st, 2021. So next year. And that's due to regulation. So in Canada, we have some new regulation that's coming in place that's going to be banning the use of these HFC blowing agents. Uh, and so uh, I know Owens Corning and I think Dow are both going to be releasing new types of XPS that's going to be significantly lower impacts. I haven't seen the EPDs yet, but watch out for that. So that's something that you can incorporate into your specification that you uh, uh, don't have, don't specify HFC blowing agents in in the XPS and same thing for spray foam. Um, and there's, there's alternatives available on the market for that. So I think focusing on kind of like the, the highest impact types of insulation and what you can do in terms of specification, that can be a very tangible, uh, step to focus on. That's great information for our network to hear, Anthony. Um, so, you know, you guys, uh, Jennifer, Anthony, I think all of you have uh, actually addressed this issue, which I'm very, I'd like to hear a little bit more about. It's what I think of as the time value of carbon, the importance of, um, you know, and it's sort of a, it's sort of conceptually a little bit, uh, a little bit of a challenge to understand the importance of mitigating the carbon impact as immediately as possible, right? And the fact that that one of the things that differentiate embodied carbon uh, embodied carbon from operational carbon consumption is that the embodied carbon is all built into the building on the day it starts operation, right? I mean, have I got that right? Yeah, if you don't make the right choices in your design process and you don't kind of procure the right materials, you know, you've spent that budget and it's there. And um, on operational energy, you know, you want to do the best you can, but then you can also go back and retrofit things. But, you know, there's a missed opportunity if we don't start focusing on embodied carbon in, in the early design and, and procurement phases. Um, because once you haven't made those good choices, you, you can't go back. <laughs> so so you go, you go, it goes right back to, to, you know, Ted's last question, which is how do we as practice, practitioner, practitioners evaluate the merit of going with uh, triple glazing versus double glazing, for example, or something like that. Well, the other question for me too is like I'm kind. Of, in some cases, it's just like, and I've never seen, and it's probably been done, but you know, I, I'm I'm not such a keener that I'm out there, you know, checking this stuff out all the time. Um, yeah, let's put it this way: I'm 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 much more compulsively washing my hands nowadays than I'm than I am tracking journal articles. But um, the um, uh, Poltruded fiberglass versus aluminum. Like, is, what's the what's the scoop of that? Right. Just I, I don't know. Like, is, is is it even worth considering the difference? Is it a big difference? How how? So I like Anthony's idea of looking at what I call the big ticket items and looking and saying, well, look. I mean, if you want to, you know, you can spend a month analyzing the life cycle uh, uh, assessment of your of your door hinges, but you know you've only got eight doors in this building, so that I don't know if that's going to make a difference or not. Um, on the other hand, you know you've got this amazing, huge cavernous roof surface that's filled with you know 16 inches of insulation. Like that could be the thing that you should be looking at, and so it's it's sort of that. I mean, so from a facade design point of view, I, I want to know 
are there certain materials that are like way bigger, worse than other materials, things to avoid? It's, it's, it's just sort of a, um, a technique of parsing through so I can get down to a short list of things that are sort of somewhat comparable. Well, I'll jump, I'll jump in here and then I, um, I, I bet Anthony will want to add to it. Um, so there, you know, I, I think there are a couple, couple issues here and, and I, I know that the, the, the design um, and construction and specification community um, would love to have a nice, simple list, um, good, good materials and bad materials, and then be done with it. And I, and I completely understand how that would be handy. Uh, but generally, I think that it's difficult to go down that path because there are will always be trade-offs. Um, and then, Ted, as you're bringing up, and I think this is brilliant, um, it, don't focus on the tiny bits of the building. Focus on the on the parts of the building that have a lot of mass, so that you know that your decisions will will, um, will you know have impact um, in proportion <laughs> to the amount of effort you're putting in in answering the the, the question. So you know a, a a big impact decision would be: Do I add another layer of glazing um, to the this curtain wall? And and that's the sort of thing you know you could study actually quite quickly and easily. Uh, Certainly, with our impact estimator tool, uh, to to get the LCA on that, and then get your you know your your energy simulation data, pop that in the tool as well, and then very quickly do your your uh, your pay your you know your carbon payback was how many years will it take for for me to to, to pay that back? Yeah, and then I guess on the insulation example that Anthony gave you know, that gets into actual product selection. And that's where I think EPDs are important. You know, we've had successes on jobs now with the ability of, of going into EC3 and even before that, doing our own kind of spreadsheet analysis of EPDs, of, of making that switch from this type of insulation to that type of insulation, or even this manufacturer to that one um, based on their embodied carbon data and their EPDs, the global warming potentials in their EPDs. So I think it is a one-two punch. And I think there's room for really good wins in both early LCA and procurement um, of, of materials using EPDs. And I think we needed to be doing both um, to really start pushing things forward. Yeah. And it's also important to understand that like many of these tools, like, like I mentioned earlier, oftentimes they're using industry average values. And so there can actually be big differences between the industry average value versus like some manufacturer specific data. So for example, you know, like we could say aluminum typically has very high impacts on the facade. Um, it's a very energy intensive product, but also where's that energy coming from? If it's a hydro driven electricity, the impact of that aluminum is going to be significantly different. And so when you're doing that analysis, is that analysis referencing um, aluminum that's based off an, kind of an average uh, electricity grid mix on North America or US or Canada? Or So you have to sometimes part of the challenge with this, uh, you know, putting out an LCA number isn't necessarily the challenging part. Uh, but sometimes understanding and interpreting those results and understanding what's in the background um, and kind of asking those questions um, is, is also an important part of it. But like, I think going back to the earlier point, it's hard to come up with an analysis unless you or come up with an answer like that, unless you do that analysis. And that analysis will vary significantly depending on what location you're saying you're, you're talking about, because the operational carbon is going to be significantly different, too. So like double glaze versus triple glaze may make sense in certain regions and not in other regions. Well, here's, a, here's something that's happening right across North America, and I would say most of the developing nations, and that is, you know, there's, a, there's this uh, amazing interest that's uh, started into mass timber buildings just because of this whole issue of embodied carbon. And we're looking primarily at structural systems 
for the buildings as opposed to facades, although there are uh, surprisingly a large number of wood-clad facades that are going on in Nordic countries on, on buildings, which, which are all constructed out of vast timber. Um, I, I wanted to just very slightly shift the, the, the focus of the discussion to say, um, do you think that when we move towards that, that people are going to sit there and say, well, you know, we've done a whole bunch of good things. This, this, I'll, I'll give you an example, you know, one of my own confessions, uh, one of my own confessions about my types of behaviors and, and impulses. So, oh yeah, I've gone for a jog, so now I can go and have some beer and chicken wings. So <laughs> here we go, like we're going to do mass timber buildings and then people are going to throw a bunch of stuff in there that potentially is going to bring the carbon footprint right back to where it was, you know? Um, and so uh, w what are your thoughts about mass timber? Do you think it's the silver bullet? Do you think it's just business as usual or, or what? I, I, I'd like to, I'd like to answer that, that bigger question you had, and then I'll maybe the others want to weigh in on, on that, that material specific part of it. But the, the idea that, that, uh, if I have a, a material that, you know, appears to have low impact, then, you know, then I'm, I'm good to go. Um, and I can forget all of my other, uh, all of my other decisions and your analogy is perfect. Um, um, and I have a similar one where, you know, I can go on a low fat, I can eat low fat foods, but if I eat too much of them, I'm still going to put on weight. So, so, you know, the, the, the question comes back to the point that I, I've probably been harping on a little bit too much, but it is a holistic issue. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to save the planet by, by focusing on just one corner of the problem in a building. I, I need to make sure that I don't undo any benefit from that. Um, because I didn't pay attention to my concrete mix, or I uh, I used uh, too much material in some other part of the building, and so forth. Yeah, and I would just say it's you know it's human nature to look for the bright shiny thing that's going to make you feel better, right? So we always have to be be careful of that. I think, um, and you know, timber is a good is a good thing to do if you're looking to reduce the carbon emissions from a structural perspective. But, you know, what we like to say is there's always going to be some concrete somewhere and you're always going to have glass. And if you, if you forget about those things, you aren't being holistic, like Jennifer said, but we do as just a kind of psychologically need to be careful of, of the bright, shiny object and really understand the nuances of wood, even when you're looking at carbon emissions data of, of wood sourcing and where it's coming from and how that forest was treated. And then of course, not forget about those other components. Right. Good point. But I, I want to circle back to um, another aspect of this that, Jennifer, you talked about. You, you suggested the importance of durability, right? And, and if you look at whole building data uh, over a robust building lifetime, right, that, that uh, the embodied carbon becomes more of a manageable consideration. And so, you know, that brings to, to the forefront this issue of durability, right? So, I mean, strategically, if I want to try and deal with the embodied carbon problem, uh, you know, on a holistic basis, whole building life cycle uh, footprint, carbon footprint impact, I can focus, number one, on material selection. I can focus, number two, on the service life of those materials, right? Um, well, you know, I think I think you're, you're doing it all, all at the same time. Um, you, you know, you... You probably wouldn't want to choose your 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 product with the lowest upfront carbon, uh, only to find that you had to replace it every five years. Because then, over the life of the building, you have you have you you know twenty times uh, uh, 
the impact of that initial installation. So, you know, I, I think you got to do it all at the same time. I mean, one of the things that strikes me when I look at when I look at uh, curtain wall systems, for example, right, and I do a, a unit based analysis of the materials that comprise a conventional curtain wall system, uh, they are dominated by two materials, which are uh, embodied energy intensive materials, uh, aluminum and glass. Uh, but they're also both very long lived material. Uh, you know, glass is good, you know, indefinitely in the building skin and aluminum, if, it, if it's, you know, properly cared for and maintained also is good. Uh, for a very, very long time. But these, you know, in the form of a unitized curtain wall system or, uh, you know, an insulated glass unit, the the service life of that glass, the potential service life of that material is basically collapsed uh, from indefinitely, like for in, in the case of a, an insulated glass unit, for example, you know, the, the, the glass dur- uh, service life from, from indefinite is collapsed down to like a 20, 25 year time frame. And it's in the, the reason for that are these minority materials, the, mm-hmm. the sealants and this kind of thing that make up the assembly. So, you know, and Ted has talked about this, right? It's identifying the weakest link in an assembly because that is going to dictate the service life, uh, you know, of, of uh, the assembly. Yeah, I think that's just, a, it's a brilliant point. And if we're going to look for fixes, I, I would think that would be a really top priority fix is, is, is there a weak link in the system that we can address so we can keep all the other high impact components in service longer? The other one that I see too is uh, this issue of adaptability. And, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm interested in hearing what, what you, what insight the pandemic has, has brought to the, the issue of embodied carbon. I mean, I see it in the form of um, uh, some of our, our, our most uh, embodied energy intensive uh, building types like airports and hospitals have been shown to be lacking in the kind of adaptive capacity that uh, the pandemic has brought to the forefront. Uh, and, you know, this, this, uh, can this sort of becomes a, a you know a, a serious issue, right? I mean, because if you're like airports are very very expensive to build, very energy intensive to build, and yet they have a a, a relatively short service life. Yeah, the, the service life is definitely so. There's two factors, right? There's like the service lifespan or like the building lifespan and how long that is. And then there's also like the individual components, which you were referencing earlier, right? And I think both of those factors are incredibly important. And adaptability, obviously, if you can make the space more adaptable to future uses, that's going to be able to, uh, you know, make prolong the lifespan of that building. Um, oftentimes, you know, the, the buildings don't get demolished necessarily for structural reasons. Uh, oftentimes, it's due to economic reasons, or it's like, it doesn't fit the the current use case or it doesn't adapt to future use cases. So what you said is incredibly important. And these factors um, can be factored into our analysis when we're making our assumptions for the building lifespan. And depending on the tools, certain tools, maybe you, you may be able to um, change the service lifespan of different materials or different components. So you can analyze... Um, the differences of, between these different options, because there's, uh, while we mostly refer to like the upfront embodied carbon of like the initial materials that are put into the building, when we're doing an LCA, we're, we are looking at the full lifespan of the building. And that means we account for replacements. So if there's multiple replacements over a six year lifespan, we account for that as well. So all this can be analyzed. Um, but yeah, to your point, the adaptability, I think is an, uh, one of the 
big ways of ensuring that these buildings do actually last uh, much longer. Yeah, this gets back to one real key point, I think, that we haven't mentioned in terms of, you know, what you can do to reduce emissions. Uh, We've talked about, you know, looking at high impact materials versus low impact materials. But before that, it's whether you build the building in the first place. Um, That's, I think, a big one for us to think about as we start to see um, more building stock potentially being available. I saw an article yesterday that REI has just built this beautiful new campus um, in Washington, and they've decided to sell it and not occupy it because they're going to let all of their employees now work from home indefinitely. So there's this beautiful new building that's been built that just campus that's been built it's just gorgeous that's going to be sitting there hoping for another commercial tenant but you know had we thought about what that could look like from a, a residential perspective or, or whatnot you know the future of that building it's already emitted all of its embodied carbon and now it's just sitting there so i think it is going to become more of an issue even you know related to, to, to covid and who's who's deciding not to go back and occupy the spaces they've built yeah, there's a there's another one called Hudson Yards out there in New York City that is experiencing something similar too. Yeah, you know it's an important point Stacy's Stacy's bringing up, um, and then everyone's kind kind of addressed, and that's that that even that overarching question: uh, should we be building less new in general? Whether um, Sorry. And then that brings in all these other things we've touched on, which are durability materials. That means we're going to replace things less often. Adaptability. Can we keep that building in service longer? And then we have the issue of, of course, resilience um, and keeping buildings in service in the wake of, say, major weather right. events. Um, right. all, all of that really ties together with this overarching concept, which is um, – that, that building, when it got put up, that new building um, had a huge pulse of greenhouse gas emissions um, the day it opened. Um, those emissions will be in the atmosphere for 200 years or more. Um, and can we do something about, you know, doing doing less of that? And and those are questions that are, you know, they're out of our control, like Anthony was saying, you know, changing land values, changing user needs, so that a building that certainly could last hundreds of years is, you know, maybe coming down after 25. Um, you know, I'm not sure that that's in our purview <laughs> to address, but, you know, if there was one big sustainability move we could make, I would say it's let's keep everything in service as long as we can. So when you put all of the these things together. So for example, and I'm sure you're familiar with these because they're all over the place in North America, but sort of towards the end of the Victorian era, there was a number of buildings that went up that we, we refer to here in Toronto as brick and beam buildings. They were buildings that had uh, structural frames of heavy timber because there was, you know, uh, first uh, growth uh, forests that were all over the West Coast, you know, huge Douglas for timbers, uh, for columns and beams. And of course, they would do a masonry uh, exterior and and uh, they would have, you know, these, these were light industrial buildings. In Toronto and I think in Montreal and probably even in Vancouver and, and all the way down the West Coast, uh, in, in the Northwest of, of the West Coast, these buildings are the most flexible, adaptable, durable and people actually love them. That's why they're actually building knockoffs of these buildings, but with modern mass timber, just because people say, I love the feel of this building. It's got lots of light because they were built at a time when we didn't have electric light. So they had you know, lots of light. They needed natural ventilation because they wanted people to keep breathing while they were working in these factory conditions, You know, things like tanneries and all kinds of stuff with toxic chemicals. So, so they had a lot of stuff going for them for maybe the wrong reasons, but... They're the ones that have lasted. And when you look at them overall from a life cycle perspective, you probably realize, well, for something that had single glazing and no insulation and was created with some fairly 
heavy intensive carbon, namely coal, when it was used to fire the brick ovens. Um, other than that, you know, on a life cycle basis, they're probably doing okay compared to some of the new stuff we're building out of steel, concrete, and glass. So, so I guess the, the point I want to get at is how do we, in with all of this diversity, and, and we don't have time because these other technologies evolved over several generations and they sort of got figured out, we have to make decisions on the fly. And I'm worried about are we properly training design professionals to be able to appreciate how what the strategies are for solving these types of complex problems? Rather than getting into the weeds about particular data, which we can get to later and, and resolve, what's the overall approach? Like how do you know how do you how do you how do you get it? Is it is in basketball, is this the time you throw on the full court press or or do you back off and go man to man? Like you need to know what what works, and and we don't have a lot of uh, uh, practice runs available to us to get it right because the, the the clock is ticking when it comes to climate change. So I'm really interested to get some of that sort of top sight from from the people here on the podcast. Yeah, me too. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's a. I mean, this this you know, like uh, Jennifer, you've said. This is maybe beyond our purview, but maybe we can't let it be. You know, it's. What do you think about that? Oh, go ahead, Jennifer. Sorry. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll go quick, and then I'll let you. I'll toss it to you, Stacy. Um, okay. I. I, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that, okay, we, we've already acknowledged that this stuff matters and that we care and there are things that, that we can do. Uh, and uh, lots of folks are doing lots of, of really um, important things like what Stacey's group's doing and, and, and getting the ears of so many people. So, you know, I, I think step one is the awareness that embodied impacts are uh, is significant and they're worth our attention. Um, then the next step is, are we, what's our state of readiness to be able to actually uh, do something, take actions, make decisions with real confidence um, that we're operating on, on the best possible information? And, and my, my suggestion here is, is we're not quite there yet. We have an imperfect system where the information we're looking at is imperfect. So we have to proceed, you know, fairly carefully um, through this time of of hopefully uh, investing in the technical infrastructure to make that information more perfect. Yeah, and maybe only proceed when we have to proceed. Well, I mean, I, I would I would counter that a little bit, and Jennifer knows me well enough to know that I probably was going to. But I think we agree on we agree on the fact that we have to work and drive towards more perfection, right? We have to get to data that people can rely on and and have trust in and, and really understand and dig into. Um, but I think what we're seeing right now is people being okay to, to act directionally on imperfect data and that okayness with imperfect data, knowing it's imperfect, um, drives that perfection. So, you know, folks asking for disclosures through environmental product declarations, folks wanting to understand the background data in LCAs for the first time, folks that maybe wouldn't have known what that meant, you know, five years ago, and owners and policymakers, I think are the last thing we haven't talked about. We all, at least I do, and I think Anthony does too, we work for people that are building buildings and are starting to look at this and ask questions around it. And we need those owners and those policymakers to start to dictate that we have to do this work and really invest in driving to that perfection that we want. And I think, you know, I'm positive about that. We're working with a lot of those 
owners right now and trying to, to drive that forward. Um, that market demand is very important because at the end of the day, we need manufacturers to understand the need to produce lower carbon options and really create the circular economy that gets to you know zero carbon building materials. So owners and policymakers need to be on board. They need to be educated and they need to actually be investing um, and, and pushing um, for better better data and disclosure around embodied carbon of building materials. Yeah, I, I agree with Stacy's sentiment around, um, you know, we're working off of imperfect data, but what we need to do is like get started and like as many people get started as possible. There's actually multiple things that need to move forward in parallel, just given the time constraints, right? Uh, it le- left to um, I guess the traditional trajectory of where the industry is going to go, it would probably take 10, 15 years for this to become mainstream practice, kind of like energy modeling is on projects. And we actually don't really have that time because we're going to construct the equivalent of an entire New York City every month for the next 40 years. That's how much new building square footage we're putting in. And so it's, in, it's critical that we actually uh, start working now with the imperfect data, but we also need to build up awareness. And I think one of the most kind of promising things that I've seen and have been part of is is um, in terms of building awareness is the Carbon Leadership Forum and these local chapters or hubs that have been sprouting up. So I think like last year in April, uh, I started grabbing some architects, structural engineers, policymakers, the concrete industry, the wood industry, all the relevant people that are involved with material design decisions in buildings. And we just started hosting a series of events uh, focused on embodied carbon, tackling these these types of questions that we're addressing on this call right now, or on this podcast. And it's, it's actually really helped ramp up the local industry capacity and awareness around this topic and going beyond just kind of the embodied carbon 101 knowledge. Like people are really grappling with this and thinking, what's their role? Like, I've seen structural engineers get really excited about this because now they really see their role inside of this. I've seen like policymakers and and um, you know building owners and different institutions like really jump on board and start to really grapple with how to address this. And now we've over the span of the last year we've now grown to I think twenty five cities around the world. Like last like last week I just had a call with somebody from Cape Town, South Africa, who, who who's going to help start up a hub there. Right? Like it's like th- this is what's required to build to bring that type of awareness. Uh, locally. And then within, when you have that critical capacity, you can actually help drive policy change. And I think policy change is one of the most important factors here. You know, that's one of the reasons why Vancouver, we've uh, had a lot more uh, people take it seriously within the industry is because we actually have policy that's focusing on this and requiring the use of LCAs and declaring a target for 2030 that we're going to reduce embodied carbon by 40% uh, relative to 2018. So those are the types of things that I think uh, we need to drive for. And there's definitely a big role for policy to p- play inside of this whole um, uh, conversation as well. So, Anthony, you are heading up the Embodied Carbon Network in Vancouver. Am I right about that? Yes. Yeah. It uh, used to be called the Embodied Carbon Network Vancouver. It's, we're going through a rebranding process. So it's going to be car- called Carbon Leadership Forum, CLF Vancouver. But yes. I see. Okay. Okay, and so you're actually doing those things that you were just discussing. You are working with uh, building owners and policymakers and this, this network of people in the Vancouver uh, area. Yes, yeah, yeah, and it's it's been amazing to see the type of conversations and the level of engagement and discussion. Like it's really 
blossomed and the like just there's so much hunger and interest in this topic in Vancouver and then that's also sprouted up in all these other cities so now I'm actually the regional director for um, Western North America Asia and Australia so supporting those local hubs that have popped up along there uh, to to help them kind of develop their local ecosystem as well so it's just amazing to see how quickly that you know the uptick has been on this topic I mean it sounds like you know to to sort of summarize some of this it sounds like one of the things that I want to say uh, to a, a, a building owner uh, or somebody that is, is considering a building, uh, you know, is don't build it unless you have to. Is that is that fair? Am I right about that? Or is that just a non-starter? I think it's fair. I mean, that's what, that's what I do <laughs> is I try to show that I think that's what whole building LCA does. Like Anthony and Jennifer mentioned, if you can show the differences between those things and educate them and just give them the information, right. There's, there's no harm in, in, in doing that. We, we have the tools right now to be able to say to somebody, here's the reduction in carbon. If you just don't build this building, <laughs> right. Yeah. Are there options for you to reuse? And then, you know, it's the education process that we as practitioners can bring to owners to get them, engaged and and educated um, in all of this. I I would actually add one point to that that we haven't really discussed yet is, you know, typically when we're, uh, if we are going to build the building and we're, it's important what metrics we're using to measure this. And so the typical one that you see expresses kilograms of CO2 per meter squared of floor area. But uh, it also matters how much meter squares you're building, like how much square footage you're building per occupant. And so I would encourage people to actually also look at what's the embodied carbon or the operational carbon per square foot or per square meter of your floor, or sorry, um, sorry, per occupant as well, in addition to the per square foot, uh, you know, floor area metric. Mm-hmm. That's a whole different metric because like when you look at it, in the US, the average residential um, uh, area per person, I think it's something like uh, 750 square feet something in that range. Whereas like in the UK, it's like half of that. And so, you know, we're servicing the same same demand at a much lower, you know, intensity. So that's another metric that we can look at. Well, what we've seen our, our clients or, you know, our architecture partners do is actually model a conceptual building of what it could be. So, right, they're taking the actual step of, of doing whole building LCA for a proposed building and then showing that difference between that proposed building and, and reusing the existing one. So that's a, another layer. But because we have tools that allow us to do that, we can. Well, the other part of it too, and getting back because we, I remember pushing years ago for per capita uh, energy consumption back when energy was a big thing because people were building monster houses and they seemed to be very efficient out of the square meter basis, but it was a lot of energy being consumed for the two people that were living there. And so we, we thought about it in those days, and the same thing I was happening with carbon. But here's, here's the thing that I like to look at, and that is. Uh, and I have this discussion constantly with my students. I talk about utilization efficiency. And, and the example there is uh, I, I, will, I will take something like a, uh, like a hospital that's 24-7, 365 days of the year. It's, we know our hospital system is full. And you're lucky to get an empty bed. It's used right to capacity all the time. Then we have something like a public school. It's used from 9 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, five days a week. And for uh, uh, weekends, it's not used at all. And, and all through the evenings, of course, it's not used. And then in the holidays, it's not used. And sometimes in the summer holidays, it's not used. And when you look at utilization efficiency, that's one metric uh, or one way to measure utilization efficiency. The other is how much space did you need? So what we learned from COVID when people started to work from home, the whole uh, 
WFH uh, movement, people realized that, man, we have like a lot of a glut of office space. We don't even know if people are ever really wanting to go back and occupy it. So we always should think, how can we do more with less right up front? In other words, we, I, think the, I think the real battle here is that we were so resource rich in North America and the energy was so cheap and all of this stuff that we just, you know, would look and say, well, what the heck, we'll just make it, you know. I'll, I'll make my my I'll make my uh, my purse the size of a, uh, a hockey goaltender's bag, and it's like you don't need something that big. You could get away with way less. What? Why are you expending all of that energy and carbon and effort and on something? And then the sad thing is, is when you see it at the curbside, ready to go to the landfill, and you go, "My God, at this rate, the, the, there's the planet will never be big enough to support our way of life." So I think it's really that part that, 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 for me, jumps out when I look at all of this stuff is I go, okay, we can make a whole bunch of good decisions. But probably the biggest decision is just like dieting, I guess, is at the end of the day, how much do you put on your plate? Yeah, I think that's a great point. The utilization, for example, I actually, I've, I've seen a company locally here in Vancouver that uh, is uh, working with hotel chains and then um, they're trying to create um, sort of like a co-working hot desking setup, but with like the unused kind of conference space that, uh, you know, when it's not occupied. And so like, how do you make better use of the existing spaces? You know, we're going to have a ton of these shopping malls that are going to be deserted in North America. What are we going to do with those spaces? So like this utilization question is key in, in this equation as well. Yeah. And the adaptive, the, the the adaptability point too. It's like we we don't consider typically in the design of our buildings the adaptive capacity of of those buildings, right? And there's a lot of there's a number of disturbing trends going on, like this uh, increase uh, escalating geometric complexity in our buildings and building skins, which I think is counter to the adaptive capacity of uh, you know the buildings into the future. Well, but on the other hand, um, if you put up a building that has some beauty to it. Um, you're, there's an argument that you're actually improving its chances of being kept around. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. I completely agree with that. It's what we love. It hangs around for a long time. Mm-hmm. And the other part is the reuse part. I just find that it's really unfortunate that the way we detail and assemble buildings that that there's not much opportunity. That Let's say a certain part of, you know, and, and I don't know, some part of the country, it's economic outlook isn't so great and so there's not as much business out there and opportunity and people say okay so but over this other place it's buzzing one of the weird things about the way we do buildings is like unlike furniture which we put into a, a moving van and we take it to the next place we live our buildings tend to the only thing they understand after they've been built is the wrecking ball and and you'd like to think boy if we could start to just imagine how some of that stuff could be in some way reused that would even be a way, a way, a lot better than just, just again, like I don't know, like, like um, I, I just, I think that it's rethinking the whole thing within this modern context, as opposed to always. I think our our, our problem is we look back and our precedents are based on realities that no longer exist, and so that's why we we keep fumbling around. We, we're fumbling around because we can't imagine the new way in which the game is being played. 
So I have a, one last question here uh, on, on my side. Um, listening to you talk, I mean, this has been really, really great. I mean, there's obviously there's a whole lot to talk about. Really appreciate you all taking the time to come and talk to us. And I sincerely hope that uh, we can provide a platform at the Facade Tectonics Institute uh, and use this, uh, use this podcast as a way to spread the message that you guys have been talking about, right? Uh, and, and serve the education of our, our network. Um, and toward that end, so I'm an architect uh, or a building owner, and I, you know, I've, I don't know uh, enough about embodied carbon. I recognize that I don't know enough about it, but I want to incorporate it into my building project. How do I do that? What do I do? Do I, at this point in time, I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about it, if I was going to do that, what I would do is start talking to the three of you about how I involve you in my building project. <laughs> is that is that what I, in fact, should be doing? And what are my other alternatives, I guess? I, I, I would suggest that what what they'd want to do is look for someone on the on the team of consultants you know whether it's someone with the hvac engineer or whether whether they perha- they perhaps have a talent in house they could cultivate to to take it take on lca as a as a skill uh, and and uh, and you know bring that person on i i can envision down the road that same as with as with folks that can do energy simulation that you know we'll have a, a group of specialty consultants that can do LCA and and then you know add it to the team and do it in an integrated design process. Yeah, and I would agree with Jennifer that you know there has to be a champion. It doesn't really matter where that champion is on that team, but someone that's willing to um, put in put a little time and just try. So there's you know the Carbon Leadership Forum that's a resource base with all sorts of uh, papers and toolkits and and um, funded things that they've done to try to get the message out there. You can join your local Carbon Leadership or Carbon Leadership Forum chapter to just get more well versed in things. You can just try to use a tool. Go to Athena's tool because it's free, or invest in a tally license because you use Revit, or look at OneClick, or go to EC3 if you're doing specifications and procurement, and just start to get your feet wet. Um, and I guess my other advice that I give a lot of the time is don't try to feel like you have to do everything. You know, maybe you are just going to look at the structural systems. You're going to pick one material category to focus on to really understand. I think if we all just start and try um, and find those champions that are really excited to do that um, on teams, that eventually we'll get to Jennifer's end state where there are these experts across all these different um, practitioner groups that, that are doing this work. Mm-hmm. And actually, one, one more resource that I, I, just further to Stacy's point around the Carbon Leadership Forum. There's obviously the local hubs. If there is one, you can join one. If not, start one up. <laughs> Definitely good good chance to do that. Um, but also, the, there's an online um, kind of forum or discussion board as well. And so that that's also a great place to put your questions and kind of uh, yeah uh, learn about the latest kind of discussions or research or topics or reports. Um, there's a very active and vibrant community there. So when you join the Carbon Leadership Forum, there's also this kind of online um, portal that you can kind of get access to. So I highly encourage you to kind of engage in the online discussions there as well. So we'll put we'll put uh, in in our show notes we'll put a link to the Carbon Leader, Leadership Forum and if there's any other resource links that you uh, that you would suggest all of you uh, send them to me and we'll include them in the show notes. I'm sorry. Um, I'll be quick on a on a project. It's quite possible that whoever if the project's going for lead, uh, it's quite possible that whoever is looking after that for them on the team will already have some knowledge about these topics because there's a, a nice fat credit and lead. Um, to do LCA on uh, on a design project, right? 
And what? How much is that credit? How many points it's is that credit? The base value is three. It's it's up to five points depending on regional. If you if, if including the regional priority. I think that's just in Canada, Anthony. Um, yeah, it's it's three uh, in the U.S. And what actually the sorry I should say the base value is one um, with V four point one, um, but up to up to maximum I think of four in the U.S. And then there's also the EPD credit and the EPD optimization credit exactly. on the construction side, plus the pilot credit for um, reductions based on procurement and the EPDs that you provide. So there's actually a good suite of points available across both design and construction. Yeah, that's a good point. So there's a really good chance that the LCA consultant on a project team is is, is going to have a good uh, starting point on all that. Yeah, okay. Uh, Ted, any parting comments, questions? No, it's been a fascinating discussion. It's always nice to learn a few new things and get a whole bunch of different perspectives. I, I, I certainly would say that I feel more optimistic about things improving as we get further into using these tools. I think it is, in many ways, a great way to just have uh, deeper design-related uh, discussions amongst people on, on design teams and with owners, and, and then ultimately with policymakers. I mean, it's it's uh, talking qualitatively is one thing, but even if the numbers are imperfect, still looking at orders of magnitude difference between different types of impacts and choices, I think is really important uh, to understand. And, and it means that, that you know, we're, we're, we're driving down the road with our eyes open a little wider. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, and speaking on behalf of the Institute, um, I want to thank you. Thank you all. Uh, it's just been really a great conversation. Like I said, obviously, there's a lot to talk about. And uh, so I, I, I would love it I'd love to do this again, you know, phase two in the future or, or something like that. So, you know, let's keep in touch about that. Uh, thank you all for participating. Thank you for the time. Thank you. This is yeah. great. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you. Okay, everybody. We'll check back soon. Okay. Bye-bye.